You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to John's Gospel, where we've been for several weeks now. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today. John chapter 11. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one today. There are stacks of Bibles uh, on the tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out today. That's our gift to you. No strings attached. Just start reading that Bible and see what happens in your life. Uh, And if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God. We believe that. We stand out of reverence and eagerness. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in John chapter 11, verses 23 to 27. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Maybe it's just me, but it seemed like 2020 moved so slowly, probably because we just all wanted it to be over, right? And then 2021 hits, and man, it's just gone. It's like it was January, and we blinked, and all of a sudden, here we are, and the Christmas season. We've had Thanksgiving. We've eaten our good food. We've had the stretchy pants out this past week. I want to ask you to raise your hands. I know you did. Had the stretchy pants out, and now it's, it's Christmas season. And so we're, we're getting everything ready. We're making our lists, and we're planning the feasts, and we're unboxing the lights and all the decorations. We're getting our houses ready, right, like this? If only it were that easy. If only it were that easy. I'm a bit of a Scrooge when it comes to Christmas decorations, I have to admit. I love the look of the decorations. I hate the process of getting them all out every year. We've all been doing that, or probably most of us have. We're getting ready for the Christmas season. We're watching some of our favorite Christmas movies. I'm really excited about that. You'll know my favorite Christmas movie is, of course, Rocky IV. And there's a new version out this year. There's a new version. Dennis, where are you? Can I get an amen, brother? There's a new version of Rocky IV. So I'm like, I'm all in the Christmas spirit. I'm excited. Christians refer to this season as Advent. Advent, if you're unfamiliar with the word, it means arrival. We set aside the end of each calendar year to celebrate the humble arrival of the Christ child. See, Christians believe that this Christ child, Jesus, this baby born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, we believe that this child is unique. He is not merely a human He is God, God in the flesh, God who came to dwell among us. And we have good reasons to believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. We have good reasons to believe that Jesus is the only one who can bring to us that for which our hearts are searching. See, all around us, especially this time of year, are these promises of the good life what we've been talking about in this series for many weeks. Everywhere you turn, YouTube ads, the billboards, the checkout aisle at your grocery store, everywhere you turn are these pictures and promises of the good life. 
Go here and you'll be happy. Take this vacation. Buy this product. This is what you've been lacking. All of these pictures and promises. But here's the reality. Only Jesus can deliver. Only Jesus can deliver. Your heart, your deepest you, your heart will search and search and search until you come to Jesus and walk with him. Your heart will be fully and finally fulfilled only when you come to Jesus. Now, we've been exploring this claim throughout this series, and we've been doing so by looking at the Gospel of John, and in particular, looking at the I Am sayings. Seven times in John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am, and then he fills in the blank with a metaphor that reveals more about who he is and what he came to provide for us. And here's what we've learned so far. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. We saw that in John 6. Jesus is the light of the world. Last week, we learned that Jesus is the door or the gate to the sheepfold, and he's also the good shepherd. And today in John 11, we will see where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, we're going to circle back, really, to the very first I am saying, the bread of life. What did Jesus mean when he said, I am the bread of life? He meant that he is the only one who can nourish us, not temporarily, but eternally. In John 6, Jesus was claiming to have some type of power over death. That's a bold claim, Jesus. Prove it. Prove it. You know the saying, the proof is in the pudding, right? John 11 is the pudding. John 11 is where Jesus shows us that he does, in fact, have this power over death. It's a well-known story, a remarkable story, probably the most well-known story of all seven I Am sayings. We're going to look at it in four parts. I'll retell it in these four parts. It begins with the threat of death. Then we're going to go to the very house of death. Third, we'll see the undoing of death. And finally, the plot of death. So four parts. Here we go. First, the story begins with the threat of death. Look at verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now here at the beginning of this very remarkable story, we meet the main characters, Jesus and Lazarus. And we meet the secondary characters, Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. Now, Jesus knows this family. He knows the family well. In fact, he's been in their home before. We read about this in Luke chapter 10. So something has happened to this family after Jesus left them. And they must have somehow kept track of his travels because they're able to contact him in their moment of need. And the moment of need is Lazarus. He's become ill, deathly ill. Death is threatening to claim Lazarus. And so the sisters, Martha and Mary, they send word to Jesus. They send word saying, Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He knew the family. He loved the family. And so these sisters send word to Jesus thinking, surely Jesus can help. Now, when Jesus receives word of this tragedy 
that has hit the family, the first thing he says, with great confidence he says it, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now that's strikingly similar to what Jesus said in John chapter 9. You remember the story of the blind man, the man who was born blind? The disciples see this man and they ask Jesus a question. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And what does Jesus say? He says, neither. This man was born blind so that the power of God might be displayed. Somehow, mysteriously, that blindness in that man's life, it served God's good purposes. Jesus is saying here in John 11 that somehow this illness in Lazarus' life, it will serve God's good purposes. Jesus says with great confidence, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Now, all of this makes it sound like that Jesus is preparing to drop everything and rush to Lazarus' side, doesn't it? It sounds like that's what he's going to do. But he doesn't. He doesn't. In fact, he procrastinates. Jesus waits for a full 48 hours. He stays where he was for two days longer. Now, in the flow of the narrative, this is nonsensical. It makes no sense at all. Why would Jesus do this? We've already been told, John has already told us, that Jesus knows this family. He loves this family. They have sent word asking for his help. Why would he procrastinate? If you are at work and you receive a call from a school saying your child has been injured, they have been hurt badly, what are you going to do? You're going to drop everything you're doing and rush to your child's side, right? We would expect Jesus to do the same. What is he doing? What is he up to here? He waits two days. He waits until Lazarus dies. We know that's what he was waiting for because somehow Jesus knows the very moment that Lazarus breathes his last breath from across the land, Jesus knows. And after Lazarus dies, then and only then does Jesus say to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now pay attention to the way Jesus says that. Our friend Lazarus, in other words, we're all going to feel the pain of his death. He is our friend. But then Jesus says, I go to awaken him. Jesus and Jesus alone can do something about this death. And so he goes. Part two, now we're going to see Jesus going to the very house of death. Skipping down to verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So Jesus has already waited for two days, and now it must have been about a two-day journey. Because when he arrives, Lazarus is dead, dead as a doornail, as Dickens says of Jacob Marley, and he's been in the tomb for four days. At this point, his body would have been decomposing. Unlike the Egyptians, Jews didn't embalm the dead. They would wrap the body and they would use spices to cloak the, the odor, but none of this prevented the body from decomposing. So there would have been a terrible smell in the tomb. Lazarus was dead. Now Jesus shows up. 
Martha, presumably the older of the two sisters, she comes out to meet Jesus. This is consistent with what we know of Martha's personality from elsewhere in the Gospels. She comes and she speaks first, and she says to Jesus with great confidence and with great disappointment. She looks to him and she says, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, she's saying, Jesus, we needed you. Where were you? We sent word for you. You didn't come. And that's when Jesus looks to Martha. And he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, oh, I know. I know that in the last day there will be a resurrection. You see, not all Jews believed in a future resurrection, but Martha did. But her belief was abstract. It was an abstract belief in a distant future resurrection. What she needed was a personal trust in the one who can provide resurrection here and now. And so Jesus looks back to Martha and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus claims to have grave-robbing, life-giving power. He claims to be able to take back a person from death. He claims to be able to take the most permanent thing imaginable, death, and make it temporary. That's a bold claim, Jesus. I hope he can back it up. It's significant that Jesus travels to Bethany. Hang with me on this. From across the land, Jesus knew exactly when Lazarus died. We've already seen that detail of the story. He could have healed Lazarus from afar. He could have healed Lazarus from afar and before Lazarus died, but he didn't. Instead, he waited for the situation to go from bad to worse so that he could go to the very house of death. As if to say, death, I've got your number. I know where you live. I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. You see, when you go to somebody's house, you go to their turf, you better be able to back it up with more than talk. Jesus goes to the very house of death and watch what he does. Part three, the undoing of death. Verse 33, when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus is on the scene now. He's at the house of death. According to the Jewish funeral custom, there would have been professional mourners who were gathered around, people who played instruments, women who actually were hired to weep and wail for the dead. It was all part of the Jewish funeral custom. That was the backdrop for Martha and Mary's tears. Martha has already come to Jesus. Lord, where were you? Now Mary comes and echoes her sister. Jesus, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, our brother, he wouldn't have died. And she weeps uncontrollably. And when she does, John tells us how Jesus felt. 
John says that Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, the picture we have here is of Jesus raging with anger. Jesus is angry, not at the mourners, but at the very thing that has caused them to mourn. Jesus is angry with death. But anger is not the only emotion he experiences in this moment. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, such a light verse, just two words, and yet such a heavy verse, so full of meaning. Jesus wept. Now, this is another detail in the story that it just doesn't really add up. Jesus' tears don't really make sense when we understand that he comes into this story with two things that you and I don't have. The first one is knowledge. He's the Son of God, God in the flesh. He's all-knowing. He knew exactly when Lazarus died. He knows exactly why Lazarus has died, and he knows exactly what is about to happen. Jesus has all sorts of knowledge that you and I don't have. But not only that, the second thing he has is power. Jesus comes into the situation with the power to do something about it. We don't have that power. What power do we have when we stand at the graves of our loved ones? We have no more power than the dead themselves. But Jesus has power. Power to do something about this, and still he cries. Why? Why? There's a theological explanation and a pastoral explanation. Both are important. Theologically, Jesus is showing us that he is human. He cries like a human. He cries like a man. Christians believe that Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man. And this is why he is the only one who can reconcile God and man. Jesus is the embodiment of his mission. The God-man is the one who comes to bring God to man and man to God, repairing the relationship that was broken in the very beginning. Jesus cries to show us that he's human. But it's not just that Jesus cries, it's that he cries with us. This is the pastoral point. Jesus hurts when we hurt. Jesus cries when we cry. He knows our pain. He knows our struggles. For every tear you cry, Jesus will cry a thousand. There's a great illustration of this in one of C.S. Lewis's books in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Magician's Nephew. In The Magician's Nephew, one of the main characters is a young boy named Diggory. Diggory's mother, back in London, is very, very sick, deathly sick. And so when he meets Aslan, the great lion who in the story represents Jesus, Diggory says to Aslan, please, isn't there something you can do to heal my mother? I love the way C.S. Lewis describes Aslan's reaction to Diggory's pain. Listen to this. Up until then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet and his huge claws. But now in his despair, he looked up at the lion's face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in the whole world. 
For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. See, Jesus Christ here to show us that his tears, <laughs> his tears are bigger and brighter than ours. He is sorrier than we are ourselves about the very pain we endure. That's how much Jesus loves you. That's how much he cares about you. That's how much he cared about Lazarus. And so Jesus cries, and then he moves to the tomb. And when he moves to the tomb, he speaks. Verse 41, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man, the man who had died, came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Angry at death, heartbroken for the hurting, Jesus moves to the tomb and he speaks twice. First to God the Father, then to Lazarus his friend. He looks up in prayer and speaks to God the Father so that everyone who witnesses this miracle will know that God the Father sent him. That Jesus has come from heaven to earth to accomplish his mission. He looks down into the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and he speaks to the dead man so that all will know exactly what Jesus came to accomplish. And notice that Jesus doesn't even have to lift a finger. Not a finger. He speaks. And as he does, Lazarus come out. Those words, they enter the dead man's ears. His heart suddenly begins to beat, sending blood throughout his body. His brain activity is reignited. His flesh healed. His muscles restored. His eyes open. What was the first thing he thought, I wonder? Lazarus is alive. Death undone. All with a few words. What power is this? It's the power of God. It's the power of creation. Only the God who was present at the very beginning, only the God who spoke a life into existence, only he could be the one to speak and raise the dead. From this day forward, everything must have changed for Lazarus. And everything changed for Jesus. Because you see, John 11, it's a turning point in the gospel. John 11 doesn't end with the resurrection of Lazarus. It ends with a plot to kill Jesus. This is part four of the story. The plot of death. Look at how the chapter ends. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some, 
some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. This story is the very thing that causes the Jewish leaders to have such resolve that they will have Jesus arrested and tried for blasphemy. It is the raising of Lazarus that leads to the death of Jesus. But Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus knew that the only way to save Lazarus, the only way to raise his friend, was to bury himself. This is how Jesus saves us. By burying himself. By going to the cross, laying down his life for us. As remarkable as this story in John 11 is, it's just the teaser. It's just the preview. This is not the picture, the movie. It's not the main event. The main event doesn't come until the end of John. When Jesus himself goes to the cross, lays down his life, and on the third day is raised. Here at his cross and his empty tomb, Jesus defeats death for good and all. And all who believe in him will experience his resurrection power. Power that brings a new way of life here and now. Understand that when you come to Jesus, when you believe in him, it's not merely that you're waiting for the life to come. It affects you now. It's resurrection power now. You are raised to walk a new life. No guilt forgiveness. Jesus, the good shepherd, will guide you. He will care for you. Jesus, the light of the world, he will help you see yourself and other people and creation itself differently. It's resurrection power now and it's resurrection in the life to come. It means the death is not the end of your story. It wasn't the end of Jesus' story. The Welsh poet, Dylan Thomas, great name. Famously, he wrote, Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The truth is, we don't have to rage. Because Jesus already raged. We just saw it in John 11. Angry at death. Jesus raged. He went to the very house of death. He defeated death. For us. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the power that you have over death. Thank you for this story just another place that reveals your glory, who you truly are, and what you can bring to us. Lord, this morning our prayer for all who don't know you is that right now you are working in their hearts, drawing them, giving the gift of new life, giving the gift of faith, convicting hearts. Help them to see, Jesus, that 
you are the only one who can provide what they're looking for. And for those of us who are your people, Jesus, we want to live for you. You've given everything for us. You've claimed us as your own. You promised to guide us, to care for us, to be the light we need. Oh, but Lord, at times, we turn away. At times, we prefer the darkness. All we like sheep have gone astray. Forgive us. We're not here this morning pretending to be perfect. No, far from it. What makes us different as the church is not that we have no need of forgiveness, but that we know where to find it. We know we find it in you, Jesus. As we prepare for this time of communion together, we ask you to forgive us for the things we have done and the things we have left undone, for our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We have not loved you, God, with our whole hearts. and We have not loved our neighbor the way you teach us to love. Forgive us. We take refuge in the promise of your word that when we confess our sins like this, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The gospel is the good news. We are forgiven because of what you have done, Jesus. Because of what you have done. We celebrate that together today. In Jesus' name, amen.